This is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. This is uh, season three, and today uh, we're on with uh, Science Mike, Mike McCarg from the podcast Ask Science Mike, who's been broadcasting a lot about COVID nineteen and um, and you know, aka the coronavirus. He's a good friend of mine from, uh, from via Rob Bell and some of Rob's work out here in, on the West Coast. Uh, Mike, welcome to the Kick Aspirational Podcast today. It's good to be talking with you, David. <laughs> it's always good to be talking with you, Mike. I, uh, I learn a lot whenever we whenever we get together and have a conversation. Uh, so I um, let's start with and you know, Mike, maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, your background, uh, what the science is in science, Mike. You know, are you a scientist and um, and what you've been broadcasting about, uh, you know, in general, but also with why you're broadcasting about COVID-19. Oh, thank you so much. That's where I like to start. Because um, with a name like Science Mike, people get the wrong idea. Um, Science Mike was a joke someone made at a party uh, based on how much I love and follow the sciences. So I am not a scientist. Uh, I'm the equivalent of your friend who loves the NFL and can <laughs> name the quarterback of every uh Super Bowl game all the way back through history, right? So he doesn't play football, but he loves the game and knows a lot about it. That's me with science. I'm a science educator. And what I try to do, the goal of my work is to make the insights of science accessible to everyone in a way that remains accurate to the research, uh, that we steer clear from pseudoscience and distortions of what science has to tell us and helps people understand how science can play a role in their daily lives. That's, that's fantastic. I think, you know, a lot of people right now, I mean, uh, for example, you had mentioned in your latest podcast, the Imperial College of London um, data modeling with the World Health Organization. Um, you know, I think you and I read enough um, research and summary, you know, and, and have done enough science in our lives to, to read and understand at least the summary introduction, a lot of that and understand that how the, how the data modeling works, but for the average listener, it might be more than they're willing to read. Um, and so I think it helps, helps a lot of us to break down this information into digestible components. Um, mm -hmm. As we're talking about, let's, let's start with COVID-19 and then we can get into more personal stuff because I think that's probably the most topical and probably why people are, are, uh, are jumping in and listening to this. We get a lot of people jumping in right now. Um, can you give us a quick update? You've got a podcast called Ask Science Mike that has has had two recent podcasts about COVID-19, a.k.a. the coronavirus. Um, and I think even from, you know, the, the first one you did, you were trying to give us some basic facts about COVID-19 that would be kind of that would that would endure. Um, what can you tell us right now today? Today is Friday. It's the 20th of March. What can you tell us today about where we are, um, you know, on the planet and in California? You're living in L.A., is that, is that right, Mike? That's right. I'm an. Um, what can you tell us today about, um, you know, about the world in the United States and particularly California about what's happening with COVID nineteen and and uh, where we are, what we know. Well, what's so challenging with COVID nineteen, which is the name of the disease, and then when we talk about the virus that calls it, we might say the coronavirus, which uh, we'd want to understand first for the sake of clarity that there's lots of coronaviruses, most of them. Uh, play a role in people getting the common cold. There are about 20% of common colds are coronaviruses. Uh, so what we're talking about here is one specific type of coronavirus that mutated it. It jumped across species from another species to people, uh, making it a novel virus. So that virus has been called 2019-NCOV. That was its preliminary name. And its official name now is sars COV2. And I, I, I say that not to overwhelm people with numbers and letters, but so that when you listen to the media and you're hearing coronavirus and you're hearing 2019 NCOV and you're hearing SARS-CoV2 and you're hearing coronavirus, I just want you to understand the relationship between those terms to help you more easily digest what people are telling you. And because uh, SARS-CoV-2 is a novel coronavirus, it's very challenging to study because it is so new. We don't have any historical data to go on. So we're living through the initial wave of data right now, 
And that means any information we hear about the infection rate or the mortality rate are preliminary numbers because more people have COVID-19 than have recovered from it. And that's going to be true for some time. Uh, So what we are finding in this preliminary data is very concerning. Uh, There are three things that make COVID-19 of special concern. Number one, it has a long incubation period. So if you look at something like influenza from the time you're exposed to the virus to the time that you exhibit symptoms, it's a couple of days, literally a couple of days. With the coronavirus, uh, it is five to 14 days, during which time people are shedding the virus and are therefore contagious which means it appears that somewhere for every one infection of COVID-19, that infection will create between 1.75 and two and a half additional infections. And that's a very high uh, infection rate, especially for something with the mortality rate we're seeing with COVID-19, which is also preliminary, but also concerning, uh, depending on how much healthcare intervention that we're able to offer will wildly vary what the final mortality rate ends up being. But for now, this virus looks to be about 20 times as deadly as the 1918 flu pandemic, which means unmanaged and unmitigated, it has the potential to have an enormous and unmatched cost in human life, which is why you're seeing places like California react so aggressively with mandatory in-home Um, social distancing happening right now. The goal here is not to shut down the economy, although, gosh, we're going to have to talk about ways to do the economy. That's actually one thing I'm really excited to talk to you about, David, uh, is how to keep the economy going. But we can't have an economy going if two and a half million people in the United States die. The economic cost of that is enormous. So I believe what we're doing right now is not only the right first step to protect public health. It's also the right first step to ultimately protect so the economy. So as, as we get into some of this, that was a really great summary. I, I appreciate that, Mike. Um, as we get into some of this, you know, it, it begs a lot of questions. Um, one of the things that, you know, we work with in, in the business that I'm in now with uh, with New Age, New Age Beverages, you know, we work with people in 60 countries. We saw this start in, uh, in China, uh, really in probably in January, realistically, and it, it hit us pretty hard in that business mm-hmm. in February. They appear to be coming out of it now, although um, mixed reviews on how good the data is on, on out of China. Um, but we are seeing, you know, Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, South Korea even, and particularly Japan, um, or I would say Japan, Hong Kong, and Taiwan in particular, seem to be rebounding. Um, what would you know? And, and I think a lot of that has to do with the actions that the that the society took in those countries and the government took together. Um, one of the things I've been posting about are action plans because I think a lot of times, you know, when we think about these types of pandemics, people get afraid. With when you, people have fear, they freeze up. Um, what are some of the action plans you've talked about? Sanitation, social distancing. Um, what are some of the things that uh, that you recommend in terms of an action plan and even a mindset, like? You know, somebody posted yesterday, um, you know, rather than than behave like we want to avoid it, maybe we should all be behaving like we actually have it, because that will shape how we how we think and act and who we interact with and all those sorts of things. Can you give us an action plan and a mindset that will maybe help us uh, help us approach this appropriately? Oh, that's such a great idea. Uh, let me start with countries where the okay. pandemic hasn't arrived yet. Uh, if you're in one of those countries, you have this great opportunity right now to keep doing business and to keep living your life and to right now just do a little extra stocking up on the essentials, uh, have some extra hand soap on hand, some extra hand sanitizer, a little bit extra groceries, uh, just as uh, not because food supplies are going to be interrupted, but because we're finding consistently people panic and hoard once the pandemic arrives. Uh, and so if you just kind of goose your supplies a little before that happens, it's going to give you the flexibility to make sure you have the essentials you need as this unfolds. For those of us living in areas where the pandemic is already active, 
Uh, number one is absolutely social distancing. That means seeing fewer people, seeing people less often. And when you see people maintaining a six foot perimeter around yourself at all times, this is necessary to reduce the infection rate of the disease and reducing the infection rate of the disease is necessary to avoid overwhelming our healthcare systems. That's the scary part. Also, as you've alluded to, sanitation and hygiene are important. Learning to wash your hands well. That's a 20-second technique that you can look on YouTube and see. I even made a YouTube video uh, showing people how to wash their hands well. You want to do that often. Uh, and then regularly sanitize working surfaces. If you're in an environment like an office where you're going to be around other people, maintain that six-foot bubble and sanitation becomes very important. Sanitizing surfaces like doorknobs and light switches is essential because COVID-19 can live on surfaces for up to 72 hours. And action plan, don't touch your face. Hardest, the hardest That's thing the to do, obvious right? stuff. In terms of, so hard. I'm yeah, getting I better at it, but it's really hard. I've three times since uh, we've something. been on this uh, podcast. And I, every time I do it, I catch myself. And, you know, I think part of it is I'm, I'm always washing my hands, even at home. Um, you know, I'm constantly washing them for about 20. How, how long do you, how, how do you, how do you recommend washing hands, right, by the way? 20 seconds. I do 20 seconds. Um, so I, I just count a lot of people sing and you, uh, you rub your, your palms together and, uh, web your fingers through the fingers of the opposite hands. Then you switch and rub your palm against the back of one hand and switch and do the opposite. You take your hands and, uh, make a rotary motion around your thumb. Uh, you take the back of your fingers and rub each palm in a circle. And then you take the back of the fingers and rub the back of the fingers. And then you repeat that loop and you've got really clean hands. Um, and, uh, the, you know, I've gotten better about not touching my face, which certainly helps. Um, but I think it's, that's the physical stuff. That's to prevent the infection rate. But all the actions we're taking to prevent the spread of the virus, they have another cost. We're social animals and being stuck at home isolated is stressful. And so I'm recommending that people, uh, as part of their daily regimen, set aside time for their own emotional awareness and processing where they can allow themselves to feel grief, allow themselves to feel sadness. Don't press those feelings down. Uh, science tells that if you allow your feelings to express themselves, they come to a point of resolution. So what I'm not talking about is sitting there being afraid and anxious. That's not helpful. What I'm talking about is pushing through anxiety, through grounding exercises. I like to sit with my feet flat on the floor, take a deep breath. I'll usually take my hands and uh, rub them on my pants legs so I can feel that tactile sensation. And as I do that, it draws me away from thinking about the future and the past to thinking about the present. It's very difficult to be anxious in the present. And typically, once you're present, then your, your real feelings, the feelings behind the anxiety will show up. That might be fear anger, sadness, whatever it is. And I have a discipline about letting my body process those feelings. If this sounds like really, um, I don't know, I don't even know what adjective I would use. If it just sounds out there, just trust me when I say that this is based in neuroscience and cutting edge psychology. And it can help us by allowing our feelings out, have resiliency to process this crisis and greater access to cognitive resource to make plans. So why I start with this emotional grounding process in my action plan is to then move into a creative period where I say, what can I do to continue to move my life and work forward today? What are ways in which, even if I can't be physically with people, I can participate in economic transactions with them? Because we know that my spending is their income and their spending is my income. And so our goal is to kind of keep money moving, even in this time when everything seems so afraid. And David, I'll just tell you, I have been creating and producing more media than I ever have since we've been under this um, house order and this self-isolation. Uh, I have increased my spending on a lot of items, especially creative works. I'm uh, ordering more books from local booksellers. I am ordering uh, takeout food from restaurants I appreciate. I'm doing everything I can to remain active economically and uh, to not only be one who, who buys and consumes things, but also someone who produces things because all this social distancing is going to have a toll on our economy. 
And the sooner we begin to take actions of producing commerce, the less severe that yeah, I mean, I think to your going. point, right? Get busy and have a plan and start doing. Um, you mentioned you, you mentioned uh, more creation and more spending when you're buying uh, takeout, and this is maybe a little bit myopic. When you buy takeout food, are you concerned that uh, the person making the food or delivering the food might have the virus or might might uh, share the virus with you through the food that you're buying? It's a medium to low risk activity. Here's why. Restaurants already have stringent sanitation guidelines. They're, they go under health inspections. They already know about gloves and hairnets and hand washing and all of those things. Uh, now, we know it's not perfect because people do get food poisoning. But the act of cooking food right. uh, kills coronavirus. So when I get takeout food, um, it's typically placed in a bag by a restaurant employee. The delivery driver only touches the bag. I have them leave the bag on the step. I don't take it from them directly. I wear a pair of gloves and I take the bag in and open the bag. Then I take the gloves off. I take the food out inside, um, at which point I've now I bypass the delivery driver. I wash my hands and then I remove my food from the packaging from the restaurant set it on a plate, wash my hands again, then eat. And um, I, that's as, as good a protocol as we're going to be able to get. Uh, but my concern is, you know, restaurants, uh, last night's earnings are today's payroll. They, they're, they're not deep cash reservoir businesses. And if I don't step in right now and support local businesses I love, there's a chance yeah. they'll never open again. And yeah. I like my neighborhood coffee shop. I like my local restaurants. So I, I think most of the small businesses passes. in America have about two weeks of cash, you know, that they can endure uh, something like this with. And, you know, if, if we're not supporting those businesses, particularly the ones we love that are local, uh, there's a good chance they won't be around in two weeks if, uh, if you know, assuming this goes on, which kind of leads me to another question, which is... Um, how long do we think this is going to last? You talked about the Imperial College of London, you know, the extrapolated data and the data modeling they've been doing with, uh, with the World Health Organization on your last podcast. Um, how, how long do we think this is going to last? Do we think this is a new reality? What do places like Taiwan, uh, Hong Kong and Japan and maybe even China tell us about what, what we can expect? Yeah. Um, First of all, you just named like the the <laughs> heroes of this crisis, those countries. They yeah. reacted so quickly um, that they were able to really mitigate the initial exponential spread of the virus. Yeah, I, I would add to that. You know, I spent that. a lot of time in Asia, um, Japan in particular, also Taiwan and Hong Kong. You know, they, they do have generally compliant cultures where if the government says, we do this, or we need to do this, the society acknowledges and accepts that those things are in their best interest. Um, so, you know, versus in the U.S., when the government says do this, we have a lot of people that do <laughs> the opposite, as we know. <laughs> yeah, they go by they ammo. They buy ammo. Because they're going to have to take down the government. Um, so go, go ahead, though. Keep. I apologize. I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Um, Oh, no, I, I, you're absolutely right. The, cult, the cultural values in those countries have been significant assets in right. their fight against COVID-19. Uh, so, number one, their initial suppression period gets to be shorter than ours because they acted immediately. Because we were slow starters in Europe and in the States, our initial suppression period starts behind the curve. Uh, and the exponential growth went on longer, which means to avoid overwhelming the healthcare system, our suppression efforts will have to last longer. So if we're talking about the United States and most European nations, I would expect the initial at-home orders to be a minimum of three months and maybe three to as five many months as five or for, six months. For, for the initial. Yeah. And then what you're going to see most likely in China and Hong Kong and Singapore uh, is they're easing up their social distancing and they'll do that for a period of maybe six, eight weeks. And then the virus will start taking off again, and then they'll lock everything back down. And that's the cycle most countries are going to be on until there's a vaccine, which could be 12 to 18 months. We'll have periods 
where there's less restrictions, more freedom of movement, more social interaction, and then a tightening again. And the variable that will determine that tightening is the daily number of admissions into intensive care units because the key to having people survive in late stage COVID-19 with severe illness presentation is access to ICU resources, especially ventilators. So if we don't keep the number of people who are infected low enough so that the number of severe case presentations can fit in our ICU bed capacity, that's when deaths climb into the hundreds of thousands or even the millions. Uh, And that's why in some ways, this will be a new reality. And that means for us business people, uh, we need to start planning into our production pipelines and into our delivery mechanisms, periods of extreme isolation, then with periods of less restriction. And if we can kind of cue or set up uh, the operations that require less social distancing to happen efficiently in those periods when things are more open, then we'll be able to stay ahead of this. But it is likely, at least based on the data we see right now, including the data we see right now where there's already starting to be a gentle uptick in uh, many provinces of China as they ease social distancing, is that this is likely going to be a cycle that continues. It until seems like, to, I mean, I agree with you. I, I think um, one of the things that we've seen is, uh, you know, in, in the Asian markets is that the social distancing, and I think in, you know, also just the, the, the aggressive sanitation and hygiene practices um, that they've implemented, as well as the regular temperature checks, seem to be making a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, I actually just approved uh, an event in Okinawa that we're doing, uh, which will not include any uh, indoor gatherings. It's, it's mostly outdoor. They do practice social distancing. They do pr- practice aggressive hygiene uh, practices right now. They will be taking temperatures. Um, but in Japan, they're allowing travel. They are allowing, uh, uh, you know, outdoor activities. And um, what we're trying to do is maintain business as usual in a responsible way. Um, in, in a country, by the way, where, yeah. uh, you know, they have, they've really limited the number of new cases and uh, people are recovering fairly well. Um, you had mentioned that you're looking at doing some of the events. You have a new book out. Is that right? <laughs> it comes out April 28th. It's called You're a Miracle. <laughs> you a new a book coming out called You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass coming out April 28th by Mike McCarg. I'll just repeat that so everyone can find it. But how are you going to adjust the events and the activities to promote that book that would typically be in bookstores, book signings, face-to-face meetings, things like that? What, how are you adjusting? I think that's a great test case for people to kind of look at. Um, what's neat about continuing business as usual in Japan is if the government says, keep a six foot bubble around yourself, people right. will do it. <laughs> then, well, uh, if you look at the United they States, do keep a six foot, I mean, Florida, even just a normal course of business, you know, people don't shake a lot of hands in Japan. They bow, they don't hug a lot. Um, they don't kiss, you know, people already wear masks when they're sick. You can touch on that too. But yeah, I mean, so totally different societal behaviors. But, but continue, Mike. So out here in the Wild West, uh, we're probably going to have to change things to be online-driven for a while. And uh, I think my book tour makes an excellent case. The, there were th- a few things I knew. Number one, I knew I still wanted to support my local bookseller partners, that I think they are an essential part of the book industry and valuable cultural institutions. So I knew that right up front. Number two... I knew that people bought a ticket that said they got a personalized copy to the book, and I still wanted to to get a personalized copy. Number three, people like to have direct interaction with me where they can ask questions, so I knew I had to be able to facilitate that. And number four, I know people come to my events to connect in local community, right? Uh, And so I was like, how do I do all these things without getting on an airplane? And I realized that the key was, number one, to continue to work with a local bookseller partner on the ticketing and fulfillment of the books. But number two was for me to generate some software, a web application that would allow the bookseller to send a link out to their buyer. And the person goes there and types into a form what they want their personalized copy of the book to say in my handwriting. And that's generating a a signature sheet for me where my uh, publisher drop ships me a box of books. I go in and sign all of them and I put a fulfillment page in the front cover so the bookstore knows who to deliver it to. 
And then, then that box of books gets shipped to the retailer who uh, then either, you know, people can come pick it up if there's ease of movement or if you're in at-home restrictions, the local bookstore can mail that copy locally. Uh, so they get their same personalized copy. And then I'm using an online uh, events platform that allows me to bring people on camera and ask me questions directly in the same way people stand up and ask me questions in my events. So they still get that face-to-face interaction with me. And now because I'm not traveling, I don't have the same time constraints on how long the event can go. So if we do questions for three hours, I'll do questions for three hours, right? Because I'm just at my house. Uh, so I'm actually hoping to kind of increase the amount of value that my uh, audience feels at those events. And then in terms of creating local community for every event, and we are still doing these city by city, even though I'm staying home, uh, then you know the Nashville group will also get a link to go sign up if they want to a Facebook group where they can connect with other people before, during, and after the event to kind of form that community that they're looking for anyway. So what I did is sit down and say, what are the touch points that an in-person event provides? And what are the ways I can offer those same touch points in an online so, and remote delivery? A couple questions. One, um, what's the website where people can, uh, the web app or website where people can find this book? Okay. Uh, well, the book's available everywhere books are sold. Uh, the the events platform uh, that I use is called Crowdcast. The URL is crowdcast.io, and it's a great product that uh, is doing a good job even handling the surge in demand that's and happening then, right um, now. And then if people want to come to an event or want to have a local event, is there a way for them to request that or ask that from you? Yeah, if they go to my website, which is mikemccarg.com, if you can't spell that, don't worry. You can also go to asksciencemike.com. If you click the events tab, you can see the tour stops I already have. If you'd like a new one, just go to the speaking page and make it. Right, a so we can, we can organize a Laguna one. Beach one, Mike? Good. We, you we have a great relationship could, yeah. with Laguna Beach Books here. You know, Sarah has her own publishing company and her own imprint, and is, we've done a lot of events here. We'd love to, love to host one for you here as well. And what's the title of the book again? You're a miracle and a pain in the ass. Embracing the emotions, habits, and mystery that make <laughs> you. Speaking of the emotions that make me me, um, we talked about a little bit about this whole idea of uh, of you know the grief that maybe people are going through, and and that's a hard word I think for some people to admit that maybe there's there's grief in their life right now because of the, the kind of the emotional trauma of what might happen with this virus. Can you explain some of that? You, you went to, into it in depth on your, on the COVID-19 podcast you did on Monday. We had a follow-up on, on Wednesday, but on Monday you talked about that. Can you talk about that a little bit, what that means? Yeah, we are social animals. Connection with others is everything to us. Our bodies and brains equate connection with others with our very survival. And so when we see numbers, like if you live in the United States, 250,000 or 2 million deaths, that's a staggering statistic that we immediately psychologically begin to personalize. What, what, what's the, the estimated number of cases and deaths? Between 200,000 and 2.2 million is the current of range death, of death uh, in COVID-19. out of that Imperial College of London report. Right. Deaths of COVID-19 in the United States alone. And when you hear a number like that, it's frightening. And your brain goes, wait, who am I going to lose? Which is a terrifying question. Uh, and our bodies have defensive systems against such ideas um, because you know, what if the idea is wrong? And so we begin entering into the grief process. Grief in our species is a form of separation anxiety that cannot be resolved. Uh, and so we go through the stages of grief, the denial, the bargaining, the anger, the sadness, all of these things that you expect in the grief cycle happen. But we have to remember grief isn't a linear process. You don't go one stage, then one stage, then one stage, then one stage, then done. You kind of move through them at random you can get to a place where you feel like resolution and then re-enter a grief cycle because this particular type of grief is known as preemptive grief. And psychologists tell us it can be more intense than, than normal grief. So often like 
some people have experienced this. You have a loved one who receives a terminal diagnosis and you grieve so intensely while they're still with you, knowing what's going to come that by the time that loved right. one passes, it almost feels like a relief. Preemptive grief is very intense. And so what we're doing right now as a society is we're in a cycle of preemptive grief together with no certainty about when that grief could be resolved. And that's causing us to act out in different ways. And then our worldviews are giving us guidance on how to process that. So I actually believe that this is a liberal hoax or conspiracy theory, is a denial bargaining form of grief processing that is encouraged by certain social groups in the same way that catastrophizing and and viewing this as a, a mass extinction event is another form of grief and acceptance uh, that's guided by another set of social norms. All of these things are what happen is when we as people uh, aren't aware of our own feelings, we allow news media and political leaders and other figures to guide our emotional journey for us. And I think the best thing for society is for people to get in touch with their grief and to hop off of the whatever, you know, emotional subway a media figure or political leader is taking them on and make them. Yeah, I mean, I think to your point, and we've had some questions coming in. Um, I know John Miglosh was saying, you know, 2.4 million people die in the U.S. every year. We might want to look at it uh, differently. Like, how much might the overall number be impacted? And I think that question ties into a question that I had listening to your podcast on the Ask Science Mike podcast. When you said this is, you know, this this is a, you know, there's there's a difference between a pandemic and an existential threat, um, meaning that that these modeling these numbers that are modeled um, are are models, right? These aren't prophecies, and there are things we can do to mitigate these numbers to have less of an impact, which is a lot of what we've been talking about. Can you walk us through the difference? You know, one what what the what a, what a scientific model means, particularly, you know, someone as talented as the Imperial College of London, who seems to have the most reliable data models using World Health Organization partnerships. Um, and then what is an existential threat? What is a pandemic? How are they different? And, you know, what can we do? We've had pandemics since uh, we had agriculture in cities. That's where they come from. Pandemics are caused by viruses that uh, jump across species, um, and uh, they are not existential threats. At least they haven't been in a long time. We, we know that very early in human evolutionary history, it appears some kind of pandemic got us pretty close to wipe out, wiped out, um, but that hasn't happened since. Uh, so typically, these aren't existential threats. Society will continue. We will recover. The question is how much pain uh, and for how long. Now, to the the 2.4 million people die a year, absolutely, absolutely that many people die a year right now. But let's talk about some other events to put an additional 2.5 million deaths in context. I think that could be helpful and useful. I'd like us to think about what happened to our country following September 11th, 2001 where 2,996 people died. That's not a big number, uh, but it had an enormous social and economic impact. And then if we look at something like the 1918 influenza pandemic, where 675,000 people died in the United States, which was actually a a relatively low rate compared to the rest of the world. Like that was Uh, called the Spanish flu, right? Go ahead. Uh, uh, it has been called the Spanish flu, somewhat inaccurately. So I prefer it. It, it originated in the no, United I, States. I had so heard I that it started the 1918 flu around World War One with a lot of soldiers in trenches, but that the countries participating in World War One wouldn't write about the epidemic or the pandemic uh, because they thought it was it created poor morale. And Spain wasn't involved in the war, therefore they wrote about it and they kind of got pegged with it. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah. So it's it's. That it, so often um, diseases get named in ways that are you know politically advantageous for one party or another. Right. See also yeah, the geez. Chinese flu right now. Um, and then if we look at something like World War II, uh, four hundred five thousand Americans died in World War II. So I hope those numbers can put two million American deaths in context. 
two million American deaths is not a thing right. that's ever happened in the history of this country. Right. Not in addition to the normal, normal death, death rate. rate. That's a that's a catastrophe. Yeah, that's a catastrophe that we take would take a generation to recover from. Um, so we don't want to do that. So what this model is telling us is that controlling the total number of infections at any one time have a dramatic impact on the death rate. And that if we take very high social distancing measures now, if we close school and universities, if we do case isolation immediately, if we quarantine families where someone is symptomatic, then we take this number from two and a half million down to 200,000 or 150,000 or even lower. And then if we build additional hospital capacity, which we're trying to do right now, if we repurpose other things like hotels to me, emergency care centers, uh, and we build additional ICU capacity, we can take that rate even lower. And then if we start doing more widespread testing and separating people before they're symptomatic and quarantining them, uh, and if we start doing widespread temperature checks, we can get that number even lower. So this is not hopeless by any means. If we work hard, we can actually make the death toll like a non-significant figure. I mean, I don't know how it could go, but if we did everything and we start right now, we could probably get this down below 40,000 deaths in the United States. Uh, but that, that's going to require immediate, massive, and coordinated action. And every person is going to have to play their so part. In, in to addition to, like we've that. had questions too about things, other things people can do. There's, um, you know, obviously, I think aggressive social hygiene, washing your hands regularly, uh, cleaning all your work surfaces, particularly metal surfaces, laptops. I've cleaned my laptops this morning before this podcast, my iPhone this morning before this podcast. It's really helpful that we can wash some of these things now. Um, what about masks? Are masks mm -hmm. helpful to people who are trying to not get sick? Masks will not help you avoid getting uh, COVID-19. Uh, a properly worn N95 mask can help for about an hour. Uh, and at that point, with humidity saturation, it will cease to be effective. But it requires training to wear an N95 right. mask properly. But uh, masks are designed for people who are sick to not spread their germs to other people. And we need every mask we have in hospitals now because the risk we're going to face is healthcare workers getting COVID-19 and not being able to do their jobs. And at that point, lots of people will die. So a mask will not help you. If you're sick, stay home. It'll do a better job of isolating your germs than a mask will. And let's let hospitals have all the personal protective why, equipment um, they need. Why does a doctor wear lives? a mask in surgery? versus why are these healthcare workers wearing masks, you know, on the front lines when they're in like ERs, you know, emergency rooms and ICUs and whatnot? It's to slow uh, disease spread. So a surgeon is going to cut a person open and the surgeon knows that the ex even if they're not sick, some of the bacteria in their mouth can cause a severe infection inside someone's chest cavity, for example. So a surgeon is wearing a mask not to protect themselves from the patient, right. but to protect the patient from them. In the same way, nurses moving from room to room, they're wearing those masks not to avoid catching something. That's what their sanitation protocols do. Their gloves, their hand washing, their hand sanitizing. They're wearing the mask in case they are sick with something already that they don't know about. And they're avoiding that common transmission vector which is uh, little droplets of saliva that when we cough, sneeze, or speak loudly, kind of get aerosoled into the atmosphere. Those nurses are wearing the mask to protect other right, people, right. And, not uh, to protect themselves. I know there's been some comments that uh, having a mask on may help you stop touching your face, and there's probably a little bit of truth to that, but if you contaminate a mask by touching it, doesn't that invalidate the use of the mask in general anyways? It does. And to that point of like a mask can help me not touch my face. That's true. But you don't need a hospital grade mask to not touch your face. I've seen some face. very funny masks uh, floating around the internet. <laughs> get a, yes, get yourself a silk mask off Amazon that is even more stylish. That'll remind you not to touch your face. 
uh, and it'll be just as effective as you improperly wearing an N95 mask would be, which is to say not very, uh, but it it will have you know some effect if you do get sick and helping you prevent right. spread, help preventing you spread germs because uh, it will absorb some of those uh, droplets. So by all means, yeah, if you want to wear a fashion mask, what um, be my guess? Let me I ask think you that's this on uh, an additional things people can do. There's been some discussion. Of course, I'm in an industry where we sell products that boost immunity, but we've had people chime in on, I think some of their products too. Um, you know, vitamin C, zinc, uh, echinacea. Uh, we have some products at new age that, you know, we've put through clinical studies that dramatically improve NK cells, which are kind of like bullets in the gun to shoot viruses or that double the, the lymphocytes, you know, that double the antioxidant blood value. Do you have any suggestions on supplements or products or things people can do to boost their immunity? Does that help? You know, we just don't know. Um, you know, the kind of studies that you've done uh, with your product. Uh, this is a novel virus. We don't understand the immune response in people yet. Uh, it's so new. So I would say if people have an existing immune regimen, continue with that regimen that's a great idea uh, but it, we're just we just don't have the data yet to know which supplements or techniques might be more or less uh, helpful with COVID-19 I mean there are a few studies in place around antivirals and anti-malarial drugs for people who are already sick to seeing what it does in terms of treatment outcomes and illness duration uh, in terms of triage and priority I'm going to guess that resources for um, supplements or preemptive solutions are going to uh, be a little further down the funding chain in, in studies and research. So it could be uh, multiple months or a year or more until we have data like that. Uh, but it's okay if you have an immunoregimen that uh, helps. L let me be honest, this is true. If you have an immunoregimen that makes you feel good about your health, we understand that that has a positive benefit on your health. Uh, if it makes you feel less stressed, it's going to reduce your susceptibility to disease and reduce your susceptibility to a severe disease presentation. So, uh, yeah, if, anything that people are involved in right now, uh, I would say continue it, continue any of your normal health cards. Again, we're social isolating, but please continue exercising. Please continue, uh, you know, when you can go outside, get some fresh air, as long as you're not getting within six feet of people. Um, those things are going to be necessary to maintain your body's health, to help you be less likely to get the disease and questions. So I was, I was on the phone with too. a senior scientist at the CDC, um, a couple weeks ago, uh, actually about four weeks ago, we've been dealing with this in Asian markets for some time now. And for example, um, you know, we were, so we were talking about the studies we have, some of the dramatic improvements in uh immunity and his comment to me was well you know this he said it must be frustrating because you know these are things that actually do boost immunity and people um with improved immunity seem to do better than people that don't have improved immunity i think that's pretty obvious right now right um and he said you know the the problem mm. and i think this helps frame up what you had just said about immune boosting and and why um you know doctors and nurses typically don't focus there uh, he said, you know, the CDC knows what to do with a vaccine because with a vaccine, you're looking at outcomes from studies, right? Um, you're applying a vaccine to X number of people. You're probably doing a double blind study. And at the end, you're saying, hey, these people recovered and these people didn't. It's better than the general population. Therefore, this this works. Um, I'm, I'm, you can correct that. Uh, <laughs> you're welcome to, to correct my depiction of a study. But no, that's, that's great. That's the short term, short version, of my opinion. What he said was, he said, you know, what you're talking about is prevention, and that's just not how, you know, um, active medical procedures are designed. You, you know, um, I, and I think that's where this a lot of this is kind of getting thrown up is is um, maybe not everybody understands that, or you know, there's criticism of the health industry because the healthcare industry because um, you know healthcare, particularly in a hospital with doctors and nurses, tends to be about treating. Um, people who are infected, people who do have respiratory issues, people who are in the middle of, you know, fighting for their lives around this. Um, what it's not designed to do is to prevent the population from, from catching it. 
which is, you know, that, that world is starting to blend a little bit right now, I think, you know, between the public policy all around sanitation, social mm-hmm, distancing, mm-hmm. Uh, shelter in place, et cetera, and, and things we can do to, to basically not get sick right now. And also, by the way, none of these things, whether it's vitamin C, zinc, our noni juice, cell defense that we offer, none of these things are really going to help you very much once you get sick, because at that point you're treating symptoms. Is that so one, have, have I depicted that correctly? Do you take issue with those mm-hmm. things, Mike? It's okay if you do. Um, and do you agree that once you get sick, there's very little treatment that's available? Prevention right. is tough to study um, because right. you just right. need huge sample sizes <laughs> to, to start uh, controlling for other variables that may have impacted the study. And you have to gather an enormous amount of data on an enormous number of people to get actionable data. Um, so I, I definitely agree that there it is much easier to test interventions once someone already has right. a given diagnostic con- condition. Uh, in terms of once you get COVID-19, um, I mean, we do have interventions that are saving lives. We know that uh, it, when someone has a severe case presentation, getting them on an IV with fluid support helps. We know that uh, if they get pneumonia, access to a ventilator helps. And by helps, I mean reduces uh, de- mortality rates. More people survive. Um, and But at that point, we are definitely treating symptoms. Uh but treating symptoms also so saves lives. Jump popped up from a friend in Grand Haven, Michigan, uh, Cheryl Grove. Um, she says, if, uh, "If if this hasn't been asked yet, how long is the virus? Um, how long is the virus lasting? And what is the protocol if you test positive, but you but you don't need hospitalization?" I would I would add to that, even if you don't test positive, but think you have it, if you have the symptoms, what's the protocol? What's the treatment if you if you feel it? If you feel like you have it. Yeah, COVID-19, it's going to be a 5 to 14 day incubation where you're going to feel fine and nothing's going to happen. Um, And then most cases in most age groups is a very mild symptom presentation, meaning uh, you kind of feel like you just have the flu or not even the flu. Um, The the frustrating thing from a public health perspective about COVID-19 is it's extremely inconsistent symptom presentation. So the only the only vaguely consistent thing it offers is 88% of people have a high and persistent fever as part of COVID-19. So if you've got like a runny nose, uh, that's like the rarest symptom presentation. It's If you've got a runny nose, you've probably got allergies or rhinovirus or something else. But if you've got a high persistent fever, you've got real cause for concern. Any kind of cough means you want to social isolate. Um, we're typically seeing a, a different timeline based on uh, whether you have a mild or severe presentation. If you have a mild presentation, uh, it seems to be about two weeks that you don't feel well. In a severe uh, presentation, it can be three weeks, it can be four, it can even be six weeks. Uh, And in a really severe case, uh, it usually takes two and a half to three weeks for you to die. Um, So, uh, and again, this is preliminary data. These numbers are going to change. Please don't bank on that. But it means if you believe you have COVID-19, your first step is to self-isolate. If you live with other people, self-isolate in one room of your home and let the rest of your housemates or family sanitize the entire home thoroughly. Is is it using uh, like industrial sanitation um, or bleach or what's, what's the protocol for sanitation in the home? Uh, follow the guidelines on the label of given products for sanitation, COVID-19, uh, Lysol, Lysol wipes, bleaches, uh, alcohol, all sorts of things are effective against COVID-19. It, it's stable on surfaces that aren't treated or aren't sanitized, but once you sanitize, it dies easily. Soap wipes it out. When you launder your clothes, you're getting rid of COVID-19. So, um, you just want to go through what you would do if someone had the flu in your house. Just the same level of precaution and care you would take there. You're going to go around with with wipes and wipe all the doorknobs and all the light switches and all the countertops and all the tables. And uh, you can use, you know, products like Lysol disinfecting spray with the uh, labels uh, 
directions to handle upholstered items and fabrics and curtains and just disinfect your space and you isolate physically isolate the sick person into one room and then you enter that room like a nurse does in a hospital ward you uh you avoid direct contact with the patient as much as possible uh you wash your hands before and after entering the room you under no circumstances touch your face you keep that bubble around you do offer care you bring food and water uh, and any medications a healthcare provider recommends, which is the next step, by the way. If you think you have COVID-19, you just got to talk to a doctor on the phone. Don't show up at an urgent care center. Don't show up at an ER. Don't show up at a doctor's office. Call first. Get their guidance. And the best thing anyone can do right now, in my opinion, is learn what their telemedicine options are. Your insurance provider probably has a telemedicine service that has a copay that's like $5 or on the high side, $15. That will let you schedule a video call on an app and have a, an actual doctor guide you through some self-diagnostic procedures to triage your case and give you, you specific care recommendations as well as helping you so figure out is, is not this COVID-19. So the first step is not go get tested at your local ER, right? <laughs> That's a, right. Because if you do that, you're gonna you're gonna you might you might walk in with uh, yeah, seasonal no, flu think, and walk out with I think that's right, and I think you know. Getting back to your original point, I think a lot of people are just feeling that that deep sense of despair, and they're they're looking for things to do, and people are reacting rather than be proactive. And I think a lot of what you've been talking about, Mike, is that um, one, you know, to quote Mister Rogers, and I, I really felt like you were channeling Mister Mister Rogers in your last two podcasts, your Ask Science Mike podcast. Um, you know, feelings that are mentionable are manageable. Is that right? I mean, you, you kind of talked about how we, you know, you kind of got this on the floor that we can talk about the fact that many of us are feeling a preemptive grief and we're feeling the sense of um, almost, you know, like you had said, this isn't an existential threat, but this is a pandemic. And, you know, sometimes it's hard for our, our emotions to know the difference. Um I was, if you don't mind, I, there's a, in the world, according to Garp, there's a phrase that I love um, where they talk about, you know, how their son was watching, was standing in the water, watching, just watching at the, at the shore, just sta staring to the sea. And, um, you know, they're like, what are you doing, Walt? Um, what are you looking for? And he says, I'm trying to see the undertoad. Walt's one of the young kids in the family. And he says the undertow, and he's he's confused undertow, you know, which can suck people out and drown them with some mythical creature that's sitting under the sea waiting <laughs> to reach out and grab you, right? Like this monster. And um, the parents, Scarp and Helen, you know, they started they started laughing. And I want to read this little segment uh, because I think it's it's I I when I feel this existential dread, which I kind of have had some of that come and go over the last you know for the for a while now. Um, particularly because we've been dealing, I was in, you know, Japan in, fe in February. And it's kind of one of these things where you're just waiting for it, wondering what's going to happen. Um, uh, between Helen and Garp, the undertow became their code phrase for anxiety. Long after the marker was clarified for Walt, undertow dummy, not undertow, mm -hmm. Duncan had held. Garp and Helen evoked the beast as a way of referring to their own sense of danger. When the traffic was heavy, when the road was icy, when depression had moved in overnight, they said to each other, the undertoad is strong today. And I feel like the undertoad is very strong right now for a lot mm -hmm. of people, particularly with the uncertainty, particularly with um, this feeling like we're victims, like there's not a lot that we can do. Um, and so I think the one, to your point, identifying that there is this sense of grief, this preemptive grief, this undertoad. I've had friends say, I just wish I, I, I just hope I get it so I can get this over with. Um, which, by the way, is that even true? Can you get this twice? We don't know. It's the data is too early. We have some information that says you can and some that you can't. Uh, I think most medical professionals believe in the cases where we think there might be reinfection is someone okay. didn't fully get over the disease so as a symptom relapse, but we In general, sure with yet. a respiratory infection or respiratory virus like this, if you get it, your body should build, and you get over it thoroughly, your body should build up immunity and you should not get it twice. Is that the general consensus, though? That's what we expect will be the case. I just want to be clear that we have a little 
tiny bit of data that stands right. in contrast to that. And so that is an, an open question. Uh, but I, I personally am confident, and I think most medical professionals are confident that with deeper analysis, we're going to learn that like pretty much every <laughs> disease in the world uh, that uh, especially viral diseases. And we once do believe you a vaccine. That, I mean, uh, you, there's you vaccines in trials now. Is that right? There are many vaccine and vaccine approaches in trial. The trouble is this is a coronavirus, so it's going to mutate. That's what they do. That's why we have uh, flu vaccines every year. Coronaviruses, influenza viruses like that. They like to make new versions of themselves all the time. Um, and so we'll get a vaccine and we'll have to keep making new vaccines for new variations. But the good news is this is a pandemic probably once, uh, once, once this thing rolls through society, there will be some herd immunity. So even if it mutates or if it comes back in the same version it's in now, uh, our bodies will have an action plan now and the infection rate will be lower um, and the mortality rate will be much. Oh, Chad Luck is a good friend. Uh, he, lives in uh i think they're living in egypt right now uh chad saying when is the diy home test kit coming um if we've already had it and are now better is it time to go back to starbucks <laughs> uh if you've already had it and are better good for you um follow government guidelines on shelter yeah. in place even if you've had it and feel better um uh, that that's important to adhere to those rules. Uh, the at-home test kit, I I don't know. The testing situation is very frustrating, very challenging, um, and you know the the smartest and most capable people uh, in the United States right now are working on the testing situation, and hopefully there's going to be. And testing right now is a nasal swab that gets shipped to, to a laboratory, days. and then uh, it basically has to be uh, tested in a lab. Currently, is that right? Probably isn't a rapid assay for that, right? That's now. right. Yeah. Um, coming. No, no, it's uh, it's it, it's novel viruses are tough. Everybody, it's, it's it's called novel for a reason. Uh, this thing, this thing, like, didn't we weren't? Right. It was unknown so this is a brand to science. New virus, and we're just learning to deal with it and figure it out as we go right now. Um. Mike, this has been hugely helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, this has been really, I think, insightful for everyone who's been listening. And um, if you don't mind, I'd love to keep an open door to, to keep communication going with you as we go through this. Um, you know, one of the things we were going to talk about, actually, we, I was going to kind of wrap it up, but maybe one of the things we should talk about are the, some of the financial impact, um, which is, you know, the first impact we're all worried about is, you know, yeah. our health, who's going to live, who's going to die, those, those sorts of questions. How sick will people get? How, will, will I get it? Um, I think the second set of questions, which are also important, is, um, you know, what's this going to do to the economy? What's this going to do to our relationship in society, our relationships in society? What's this going to do to how, how we think about the role of government in our lives? Um, you, you talked about the fact that you're creating more right now. You're creating more content. You're buying more books. You're, you're engaging in commerce. You're buying from takeout. Um, you know, we're doing that as well. Um, you know, I, and, and I, I'm really hate opportunism in a crisis. Um, we're trying to give away a lot of our products that we think will help people. Uh, but we are seeing a dramatic uptick in sales, particularly from our retail brands, you know, bottled water like Volvic and Evian that are um, on store shelves, uh, which I actually don't like to see um, because I don't, I don't you know, hoarding doesn't help anybody. And frankly, mm. to your point earlier, look, or I, I don't know if it was on your podcast, you said it here, but you know, water supply is not going to be impacted by this. <laughs> And the toilet paper thing, I mean, which is complete <laughs> right, insanity. Exactly. What I've heard, and correct me if this is wrong, I heard that this started because in Hong Kong there was um, there was some misinformation that the factories in China making masks were working overtime, so they weren't going to be producing toilet paper, and that started this run on the toilet paper bank. Is that accurate, or is there another reason that toilet paper has been such a popular hoarding? I had I hadn't heard that. Uh, information also the that's new to me. I'll be honest. I, the only reason I'm bringing it up. My, my research, 
yeah, yeah, yeah no, yeah. my research energies just haven't been spent on the TP crisis. Uh, but I, I do know that this is a very common pattern when people get afraid. They need some means of control. And it is plausible that story or some story led some people to want extra toilet paper, which caused supplies to dwindle, which then psychologically people see empty store shelves. They put a picture on social media and people get into a panic <laughs> about having nothing to wipe their bums with. And uh, and then every time toilet paper comes in stock, there's this panic buying. This happened before. If a rumor starts that gas supplies are going to be in short supply, there's a run on gas and pumps get empty. Right. Here's the great news about panic buying. It's not sustainable. So since there isn't actually any supply disruption in food or toilet paper or uh, hand sanitizer or soap, what's happened is simply local warehouses yeah. are empty factories are still producing these products retail fulfillment will still happen so eventually everything's just going to get restocked and then there's going to be depressed demand while people work through their their crazy extra supply so uh these kind of supply bubbles are temporary no matter how the pandemic unfolds you're gonna be able to get toilet paper you're going to be able to get soap you're going to be able to get uh hand wipes and if people would stop panicking seeing empty shelves uh, we'd be okay. Um, you know, I, we're, we're a little bit low on soap. And so I went online and I ordered one bottle of soap refill. That's not going to get filled for like a month. Uh, and we'll probably have enough soap to make right. it. But in response, I'm not ordering 12 bottles of soap. I'm just, I'm just ordering a bottle of soap that we actually need. And if people would have that approach, someone just asked if, um, gargling and, uh, you know, with, right with strong alcohol, uh, to keep the virus from going down your throat into your lungs is helpful. Probably not. I mean, it's it, it gives you great breath. Uh, it can help with gingivitis. There's a number of reasons why that kind of gargling and mouthwash approach is good. Um, but the you know the primary vector here is uh, mucous membranes, and that happens quickly. Um, so it's not that you know. Uh, it's getting to your lungs necessarily. If it gets to glands in your mouth or in your sinuses, right? Uh, you can have an infection. It can go in through your eyes. Um, so the gargling probably isn't a, a protocol that's going to protect you from COVID nineteen. You have to gargle continuously and flush your sinuses yeah. with it. And that no, would have a whole different. We are working on some quarantine recipes around here. There's some cocktails for the quarantine, which uh, have great emotional benefits, but. Uh, And I, one thing I've been doing, David, um, to that point is we uh-huh. set a laptop at the end of our table and we have people over for dinner most nights and we, uh, I'll take the laptop to our, our, our bar in our kitchen and I'll make cocktails and someone else make a cocktail. And we just talk like we would talk if we were together. Um, I think those kind of rituals are great for our mental health right now. You know, one thing I've been doing is, uh, every day in the evening, I have an, a public emotional check-in. I get on Facebook Live and then Instagram Live, and we don't talk about the past or the future. We just talk about today and our feelings, and we check in and we de-escalate, and it's been a wonderful experience to have with people. Um, I actually just invite anyone who wants to come on a camera with me on Instagram who wants to. I just bring people on, and uh, we just have a good time together, and that these things you're talking about with making special cocktail recipes, making special rituals, creating these kinds of times of bonding and these times of comfort are really important. It's and, critical uh, that people don't feel isolated. I, I value it time. and I support it. Yeah, and that we all get to express our emotional yeah, distress. that's right. Uh, another person, Cheryl Grove, just said that uh, you know, she feels like the hoarding is, is uh, I think you had mentioned it earlier, it's a reaction to this fight or flight kind of feeling, maybe this uh, apocalyptic kind of sense, and it gives people relief I think that's probably why we've seen fights over things as dumb as toilet paper, um, because it's, it's not a rational response, right? It's an emotive response based in this fight or flight mentality. And somehow people feel like if they can only fill up a shopping cart with toilet paper, their life is going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. And it also, this I think speaks to yeah. something people should be aware of as this pandemic unfolds. I've always been a person that follows FEMA guidelines about how much food, water, and extra supplies I have in my home. 
Now, I've done right. that in California to mitigate wildfires and earthquakes. But I have like eight weeks of freeze-dried, shelf-stable food that lasts 30 years. I got about 100 gallons of water in barrels. Uh, I've got lots of sanitation supplies that uh, I rotate out when they expire. And so when situations right. like these happen, I don't panic because I'm already prepared. And this is a real opportunity for people to realize that as supplies are restored, this is a great opportunity to just go ahead. And I'm not talking about hoarding. I'm talking about going to the FEMA website and following their guideline to build a disaster preparedness kit for your family. The more people do that. Now, again, you have to be of certain economic means to have that opportunity. But if you do that, it's helpful even to people who are economically marginalized because when an event happens, the time until you need public support increases. You are able to be self-sufficient for a period of days or weeks. And uh, if we take those precautions, uh, that actually has a stabilizing effect on the entire society. No, I, entire I think economy. that's really smart. The FEMA uh, guidelines are like for eight unfold. weeks of freeze-dried uh shelf-stable food, and 100 gallons of water, as well as some sanitation products. We can go on to FEMA, the FEMA guidelines. We could probably just look that up and find that. Yeah, yeah. If you do FEMA disaster yeah, guidelines, I think we did that right here in Laguna when we had some it's pretty really bad well uh, slides here. And we started um, helping people think about how they were going to deal with earthquakes and fires and, and other, other uh, natural things that happen on a regular basis here that you need to be prepared for. And this stuff isn't terribly expensive. I mean, 100 gallons of water in a drum or eight weeks of freeze-dried food is, you know, if people look at what they're spending on food anyways or look what they're spending on takeout or, or snacks. I mean, it's pretty accessible for most people, isn't it? Oh, gosh. I On my entire, and I have literally everything you're supposed to have for a family of four. And it cost me 400 right. bucks and change, including the barrels. Water. I mean, it's just, yeah, this is, this is uh, uh, it, it was not this, a crippling this is the, the rational response is to pre-plan or plan now, right? So here's an action plan. Look up the FEMA guidelines, get your eight weeks of freeze-dried food, get your 100 gallons of water, which you need regardless of this pandemic. Um, start practicing social distancing. Start practicing mm -hmm. uh, a lot of these um, sanitation practices that Mike's talked about. And, um, yeah, and, and uh, I would add to it, you know, if you've got an immunity boosting regimen uh, or, you know, maintain it, uh, certainly bump it up if you can, because the more bullets in the gun, probably the better you're going to do against virus attacks, um, at least for, you know, those of us who are healthy. So, Mike, thank you for your time today. This has been really helpful. Uh, a mm -hmm. lot of people have been saying, you know, information is power. Uh, you know, that this has been a helpful podcast. Uh, thanks for sharing this. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, yeah, more people just saying thanks for the live video. I've been putting my reading glasses on and off. <laughs> well, I, I, could I just also say, David, that, um, I'm glad we got to do a podcast together, but I just am so happy to have been able to talk with you. I am so fond of you and your life and work are so meaningful and your friendship is no, meaningful for sure. To as well. I, I, we've been and meaning to do this for I'm a while. I think we talked to talk about today. it a couple of times and in the past, my travel schedule has been ridiculous and it's just been hard to, to connect. Um, even though you're closer to me now than when we first met, you were living in Florida then and now you're, you're here in, uh, in LA. Yeah, yeah, but let's let's have it these days. Just up the road. Um, but thanks, Mike. This is all incredibly helpful, and um, <laughs> I'd like to reach out to you and see if we can do more because uh, I really appreciate what you're doing and how you're helping people deal with COVID nineteen and uh, and just get the facts so that they have an action plan, which I think is probably one of the most important things people can do. All right, thanks a lot. I'm going to shut off the yeah. uh, the yeah, thanks, David. live. Uh, Facebook live now. Thanks everybody. And, uh, and then I'm going to just, we have to do a little wrap up here.